Hello and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we're joined by Arlie and Steve Karadke from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, who chairs an insightful discussion with Andrea Apollo from the National Cancer Institute in Maryland, Alison Bertel from Lancashire Teaching Hospitals in the UK, and Thomas Powells from Bart's Cancer Institute, also in the UK. These leading experts share their highlights from the data presented on bladder and kidney cancer at the 2021 ASCO-GU Cancer Symposium. They'll be talking about exciting new data from a range of clinical trials such as EV301, Checkmate274 and PALT, and giving their perspectives on what these trials mean for the future treatment of GU patients. To kick us off, they'll be discussing the Phase 3 randomised Infortumab-Vodotin trial in urothelial carcinoma and debating the issues of toxicity in this line of treatment. I'll hand you over to the experts for today's GU session with VJ Oncology. Thank you all for joining us today to discuss about the recent abstracts presented at GUASCO 2021. I'm Arlene Sivkaradke, a professor of genitourinary medical oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. And I'm joined today by several stellar colleagues who are really doing amazing work in the field of genitourinary tumors. We bring to you from across the pond or the ocean as it is, uh, Dr. Allison Birdle, who's a professor at the Lancashire Teaching Hospital in Preston, United Kingdom. We have Dr. Andrea Apollo from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, and Dr. Thomas Powles from the Bart's Cancer Institute in London, United Kingdom. Thank you all of you for joining us today. Delighted, Arlene. Thank you, so, Oh, thank you so much. And I, I know that uh, this year's GUASCO, in the field of bladder cancer, we had several phase three trials showing level one evidence or early evidence for activity of different agents. Tom, you were involved in the infortumab Veditin trial. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work? Well, it's kind of got it. It's a, it's a global effort and many different people, hundreds of sites and around the world to part and investigators. And um, essentially, um, we've got established in urothelial cancer, platinum-based therapy and immune checkpoint inhibitors are established. And uh, we performed a randomized phase three study of infortumab vodotin versus chemotherapy in those individuals who previously received and progressed on the two lines of therapy, immune therapy, and chemotherapy. The randomized trial was in Fortumabidotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate targeting Nectin. Um, it looks really active in urothelial cancer. And on top of that, almost all urothelial cancers overexpress Nectin. So there's a really strong rationale. The control arm was standard chemotherapy, paclitaxel, docetaxel, fluonine. And um, the study met its primary endpoint of overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.70, which was statistically significant. Um, 13 months overall survival in the study arm. Uh, it also hit PFS and response rates endpoints. Um, it worked across broad subgroups of patients uh, and the toxicity profile was in line with expectations, adverse events of special interest, skin toxicity, um, neurotoxicity, peripheral neuropathy, uh, and also hyperglycemia. And actually just as with chemotherapy and immune therapy, when they came along, we learned how to use those drugs. We're gonna to need to learn to use infortumab for dotin from a global perspective as well. And, and I'm really keen to take part in that educational process. I think it's practice changing. My current standard of care would be frontline chemotherapy, maintenance of Alimab, 
an EV app for that's progression. So that would be how I would treat patients. I know there are other people who feel differently about that. Oh, that's uh, excellent data that you presented and certainly suggests that level one evidence that Infortimab Veditin is here to stay and will be part of our long-term strategy for urothelial cancer. I know there have been questions about some of the specific toxicities. I wonder if other members of the panel would speak about their experience and what they use to monitor and manage these patients receiving Infortimab. I can make a comment. Um, I, I think that the randomized data looks terrific. Um, and uh, one of the remarkable things about the response rate, which was 40%, is that we saw that in the phase one, we saw it in the phase two, and now we see it in the phase three. So not like a lot of other agents, it actually is maintaining these, these responses in the larger trials. Um, I think toxicity is, is definitely something that um, is a learning curve with this agent. People don't Think of it as a chemotherapy because it's it's a antibody drug conjugate, but it's a chemo and and it has chemo toxicities, the alopecia, the cytopenias. Um, it does have some unique toxicities. The hyperglycemia is unique. Um, the rashes are unique. Um, and but generally they're they're pretty well managed. And um, just like we dose reduce, we hold doses. Um, you know, within a clinical trial, you can't do that. But once you're managing these patients in the clinic, you can hold doses and dose reduce and kind of manage them and kind of learn how to manage them. It's a weekly dose, three weeks on, one week off. So I think um, there's a lot of room for holding and managing uh, doses depending on adverse events. And I I just wanted to say with Tom, it's it's all going to be about um, education, isn't it, really? Because we we didn't know how to manage immune toxicity to start off with, but we're pretty good at doing it now and educating our patients. And because this is going to be very different in terms of the hyperglycemia, which we still don't really know the mechanism for, it's going to be just educating the acute oncology teams, the chemotherapy nurses, the patients and the oncologists outside of the main centres about what to look at out for as this drug becomes used more in combination and more widespread when licensing in Europe is achieved? One of my observations is the drug's being moved quite quickly earlier in the disease setting. And um, we're not sure um, about how those trials are going to pan out. But uh, I know that there is, um, we saw some data at ASCO, which I think Andrea is going to talk about looking at response rates in individuals who had only progressed on immune therapy We've previously seen in Fortumab, Vidotin plus Pembrolizumab with 74% response rates, which are really, really high. Uh, remember, Gem Carbo's response rates are significantly behind there. So I think this drug is going to establish itself really early in this disease process. I think it's going to be really important in the future. And for me, the outstanding issue is that at last we've got a new class of active agents which are good at getting in control of disease. We've really struggled with that to some extent in the past. And so I think this is a really important step for bladder cancer. I, I certainly agree with all of you. The, the ability to use a non-platinum agent has been a largely unmet need for patients with urothelial cancer. And we also saw a presentation at ASCO about the use of Infortumabveditin in these patients with poor kidney function or who were otherwise ineligible for platinum-based therapy. Allison, what, what are your thoughts? Is it is there a higher risk of using this agent in poor kidney function or people who are not eligible for the typical standards of care? 
Look, I think these patients are going to die of their bladder cancer. And at the moment, we've had no agents really that we've been able to use, particularly if they aren't suitable for carboplatin. And so it is very exciting to be able to offer a novel agent for these patients. Um, Arlene, I'd like to ask you a question, if I may. There was one abstract looking at sequencing of giving erdafitinib um, in patients who are FGFR receptor positive and um, EV, um, which I know that you were involved with. And I thought that data was potentially very interesting, although we can't use erdafitinib certainly in the UK at the moment. Um, I just wondered if you wanted to share your experiences of that with us. Well, I, I think the use of sequential novel agents is certainly important since we don't yet have curative data in this setting. And trying to determine should an FGF altered patient, do they benefit as much from immunotherapy? Do they benefit as much from chemotherapy? And do they benefit as much from other targeted agents such as infortimab? I, I can tell you my own clinical sense has been that we we do see activity with these additional novel agents, especially with agents like infortimabvedetin. So I, I think the nectin-4 expression may overcome some you know, potential biology if it is indeed associated with the FGF-altered tumor. I think there still is some debate out there about FGF-altered tumors and how well they respond to immunotherapy with retrospective data suggesting uh, data sets suggesting they may respond as well and others suggesting they may not respond as well. And designing trials that help us answer these questions are going to be essential as we move the field forward. Will bladder cancer become like a leukemia where in certain biomarkers you have a different strategy of agents or sequence of agents that you use to a patient's benefit? I think it's still too early to tell, but I think the future may be heading toward that personalized strategy where each bladder tumor requires its own essential treatment. You know, they're, they're not all created equal. And we even see that with agents such as immune checkpoint inhibitors, not every patient responds. And being able to predict those that benefit might help enhance patient selection. And even thinking about immunotherapy, we had another great abstract at GUASCO looking at adjuvant nivolumab and its role in the treatment of urothelial cancer. Andrea, I know you've done some work in this field. Would you, would you care to describe the trial and the early findings? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and I was very um, uh, grateful to be a moderator for this abstract. This is the Checkmate 274 study. It was presented by Dr. Dean Bajorn. Um, it's a randomized phase three trial of adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo in high-risk muscle-invasive bladder cancer patients. They randomized 700 patients, and the primary endpoint was uh, disease-free survival um, in the intent-to-treat population um, and in the pdl positive population using the nivolumab assay 28A with 1% um, or greater as pdl one positive. And the trial was positive at both ends. In the intent to treat population, um, the median uh, disease-free survival was 21 months for the patients receiving nivolumab um, versus 11 months for the patients receiving um, placebo. So this was quite significant. The hazard ratio was 0 0.7. 
Um, and uh, in the PDL1 positive, this was even more remarkable with a hazard ratio of 0.5. So very uh, remarkable data. Um, overall survival data was not presented. Um, and this is uh, because um, the number of events um, had not yet been reached. Uh, and, and there was a question about whether this changes standard of care. Um, I think it's a little tricky right now because, and confusing because we have the Invigor 010 data that um, Tom presented um, that was, did not meet its primary endpoint of disease-free survival um, with atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting versus observation, although he did present some beautiful ttDNA data showing that patients that have uh, positive ctDNA actually do benefit from adjuvant atezolizumab. Um, this was a retrospective uh, exploratory analysis. Um, so now we're, we're, we have um, this great DFS data with adjuvant nivolumab, negative atezolizumab data, positive uh, possibly positive um, with ctDNA positive data. And really, if, when you look at the hazard ratios um, of, the, of the Checkmate 274 data, it looks like primarily the patients that are pdl one positive are benefiting. So I think, I think we need to wait for survival to kind of see what, what is the outcome in these patients. That being said, we are running um, the ambassador trial, which is adjuvant pembrolizumab um, in, uh, again, the same population, high-risk muscle-invasive bladder cancer patients. Um, and and you know, we're, we're um, almost done with accrual. And we, I think it's important to see this data and how everything kind of looks together in terms of what, what is the benefit of adjuvant immunotherapy in this high-risk muscle-invasive bladder patient population that already got chemo, like half of them had already received chemotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, um, or are cisplatinum ineligible, and now are post-surgery and really have no options that they can be put in an observation arm. So this was really compelling early data, but you point out very correctly that we have one positive trial and one negative trial. Tom, what do you think accounts for these differences between two trials and two very similar agents? Is it, yeah. Was it just luck of the draw or is there something fundamentally different going on? So I spent quite a lot of time with different trials in urothelial cancer. And we think that randomized phase threes are the whole truth and nothing but the truth. But there is probability and chance involved in these trials. And that's why we have confidence intervals. Um, so the first thing is that that may have played a role, a little bit of a role, number one. Uh, number two is there may be subtle differences between nivolumab and atezolizumab, although I'm not convinced by that. As you know, the evalumab study, a pdl one study, has the lowest hazard ratio of any of the trials, and that's a pdl one inhibitor, and many people felt that was you know, the least active of the drugs. I don't think that's the evidence that we have in front of us. So I'm not convinced that in bladder cancer, there's a big difference between the drugs. The third explanation, which actually I'm a little bit brought into right now, um, is that uh, the control arm was different. One was placebo, one was, was open label. Um, for disease-free survival, um, that's relevant. Uh, because the dropout rate in the atezolizumab arm was 20%, only 10% in the, um, in the um, nivolumab arm. And you can see a patient being ran, that's in the control arm, you can see a, pay, a high-risk patient being told they have a very high chance of relapse, being randomized to best supportive care and dropping out to go and find some other form of therapy, be it adjuvant chemotherapy or radiotherapy or something. And I can see that process occurring, where, of course, that's less likely with placebo. Um, if you look at the outcome of the control arm, uh, sorry, the study arm, the median survival is 21 months for both. 
in the in the um, Nevo and Atezo arm, but in the control arm, the Atezolizumab arm is much longer than the uh, than the Nivolumab control arm. And so that's a possible explanation for the findings. Remember, again, I agree with Andrea, overall survival is going to turn out to be really important in this. And that will tell us exactly what's happened. And with one negative trial, with the uncertainty of the positive trial, with the DFS endpoint, it probably is premature to be, un be treating unselected patients. Whether you want to take a risk with a biomarker positive patients, that's a really interesting discussion. And I'm not sure I know the, the answer to that. Mm -hmm. So would anyone on the panel see a potential early approval, perhaps in that pdl one high cohort? There did seem to be a separation in the plateau of the curves rather than just a shift in the curves. And if you think of cure, which I, I think most of us in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant space are trying to increase the cure fraction, do you think there's a potential path toward an early or accelerated approval in PDL1 high tumors? I, I personally think that the, there is likely to be in that patient group. I think the one thing we haven't pulled out in the discussion so far is that um, this uh, Checkmate 274 was negative for upper tract tumors, which were about 20% of the population. Um, and neither Checkmate or Invigor 130 were, sorry, uh, 010 were powered for that um, additional um, upper track group of patients, Arlene, because they were sort of added on afterwards when they were struggling to recruit the post-hystectomy patients. Um, whereas, of course, we do have level one data from the updated PALT analysis that was presented in terms of adjuvant chemotherapy for the upper tract. Um, and I think it just shows that these are two completely different disease entities. Um, but is disease-free survival important? I, I certainly think it is because at the very, you know, at the moment, if somebody's got recurrent disease in either the upper tract or must-invasive bladder cancer, they're potentially looking at six cycles of chemotherapy and then maintenance switch with Avelumab. So in terms of resources, it's going to be far more. And keeping somebody disease-free, as we've seen in prostate cancer, in an early disease state, less time in the metastatic setting, is far more economically viable. So I personally think it is an important endpoint. And I think, you know, it's potentially something to look at in those patients with the biomarker positive I mean, so Arlene, that, I don't want to dominate this discussion at all, but there was the adjuvant study, Cora Sternberg's EORTC study, that achieved a disease-free survival hazard ratio of 0.48 and then an OS of 0.78 and didn't change practice. Um, uh, that was a, a study that uh, didn't, uh, didn't meet statistically significant OS. And so I think most, and when you ask colleagues around the world, there does seem to be this consensus, as Andrea said, is that without survival, it tends not to be, a, be, be pursued. So, you know, I think that the regulators might say yes for that biomarker positive. Whether it will get reimbursed is a different issue in Europe, which is complicated. Um, I know Matt Kowski, um, and we've chatted about this on many occasions, and Matt says actually the patient's going to drive this because many of them will want it. And I totally understand that. And that comes back to some of what Alison said before, is when you look at the shape of those curves, um, they look attractive in the biomarker positives and patients will pursue that. I think particularly in the US, a lot of patients will get it, I, I think. 
So that, that's a really great point about the use of disease-free survival compared to overall survival. And I believe the trial that you're referring to from Cora Sternberg was her adjuvant trial where patients received either adjuvant chemotherapy or chemotherapy at progression. And with the use of an adjuvant strategy, it really enhances that disease-free survival endpoint. But if people do not have a cure from therapy and it's only delaying the inevitable, then we may not see that long-term survival, which could account for some of the lack of survival when patients receive the same treatment at progression of disease. So looking at survival endpoints become very important. And uh, I know there's other trials that have looked at disease-free survival with uh, long-term data coming on overall survival, including the PELT trial for upper tract tumors. So Allison, uh, you've done work on that topic. Yes, thank you, Arlene. So, and, uh, and Tom's one of the other trial management group members on PELT. Um, um, we originally presented the first data three years ago at ASCO GU and this year presented an update. And PAUT was a study of initially um, intending to recruit 346 patients who had had a completely resected upper tract tumour, PT2 to PT4, and they could be node positive as long as any visible nodes had been resected at the time of surgery and then they had a negative postoperative CT scan. We didn't um, mandate a formal lymph node dissection because when PALP was first being designed, we undertook an audit across the UK and there was no enthusiasm for doing a formal lymph node dissection. And indeed, there's still no level one data to support that approach. Um, and the primary endpoint of the study was three-year disease-free survival, I guess partly because uh, in the CORA's 30994 study of adjuvant chemotherapy and muscle-invasive bladder cancer, that had been identified as a key point of interest. And also because these patients do have a high rate of relapse in the first three years. Um, secondary endpoints were overall survival and the usual um, toxicity endpoints and looking at bladder recurrence and metastasis-free survival. And so three years ago, the trial actually shut prematurely because it met its primary endpoint early um, and showed a, a significant improvement in disease-free survival of about 17% um, at three years. And this year we presented the mature data, which shows that at three years, there's, uh, sorry, at three years and at five years, there's an improvement in both disease-free and metastasis-free survival in favor of adjuvant chemotherapy. And that had to be initiated within 90 days of surgery and was gemcitabine with either carboplatin or cisplatin based on the GFR alone. Um, and the difference was 21% at three years in favor of chemotherapy, um, four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy, and then 17% difference at um, five years. We did present the metastasis-free survival, which was very similar at three and five years, 19% difference between the two groups, again, in favor of adjuvant treatments. And the overall survival data was 12%, um, but was not statistically significant. And I think there's a number of reasons behind that. One, it's a secondary endpoint. Two, the study shut prematurely because we'd met the primary endpoints. 
And at that point, there were 261 patients randomized um, compared with the 346 we'd intended to recruit for which the study was powered for overall survival. Um, and also, if we look at when the first patients were recruited, it was in May 2012 and shutting in November 2017. So a lot of the patients that would have received adjuvant chemotherapy this was in the pre-IO era. So the treatment they would have got on relapse would have been second line chemotherapy with something like Taxol. And we know that that's not particularly effective. So I think there's a number of reasons why um, the overall survival is not statistically significant. But I stand by the discussions we've had about why I think disease-free survival is an important endpoint for this patient group. And it is different to muscle invasive bladder cancer. So I, I'd like to ask, uh, you know, Andrea and Tom, I, you know, we've had a bit of this DFS OS, you know, discussion, but what do you feel if, if we have to wait for NEVO survival data? Do you think, you know, the PAUT adjuvant data, should we wait for overall survival data for guidelines, approvals, or, or the routine use of an adjuvant strategy in upper tract? I think that's a that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I, I I would like to see survival benefit if I'm giving a therapy early, um, and I think I would more likely give an immunotherapy because it has less toxicity than a chemotherapy in that setting, um, especially if there's survival data. Um, with DFS data, I think I would have a really transparent discussion with the patients about the data and kind of see how aggressive they would want to be. Mm -hmm. Can I just say though, I mean, it's, it's great comments, but we know that the NEVO in the, for DFS in the Checkmate 274 study didn't improve survival in the upper tract group. Um, and um, PAUT adjuvant chemotherapy has already been incorporated into EAU guidelines. Um, and in terms of quality of life, we've published the two-year quality of life data for the study, which shows that you do get a temporary dip, which coincides with cycle three out of the four cycles of adjuvant chemotherapy, but then by six months returns to normal. And at both 12 months and 24 months, patients in the treatment arm had better quality of life than those in the surveillance arm, presumably because that was tying in with some progressions within the um, surveillance arm. I would say it's difficult to interpret the upper track data in Checkmate 274 because they only enrolled, they only allowed 20% of uh, upper track patients to enroll. And so you're looking at a subset analysis um, in terms of the DFS. Um, so I, I think right now it's it's still too early and, and it's and we may not be able to answer that question, particularly with the checkmate 274 with such a small subset. So what are what are the panel's question or panel's thoughts? If you have an upper tract tumor, do you give neoadjuvant treatment because there has been data suggesting, you know, in um, mostly single institution studies, including those at Anderson and and some you know small series, that there's benefit from a neoadjuvant approach uh, by single arm trial data. Do you prefer to wait in all patients and only give chemo? therapy at the time post-surgery. Um, anyone have any or want to share their own practice thoughts? I mean, obviously, I, I stand by the data from the only phase three randomized control trial of systemic therapy that we have in this population of 261 randomized patients from across 75 UK centres showing a benefit in disease-free survival. 
Um, in terms of neoadjuvant, they're all smaller also... studies and they've shown PCR rather than anything else. I, I still have the discussion with the patient about neoadjuvant chemotherapy, extrapolating from bladder. And like you said, I, I, there, there is some uh, smaller data sets showing benefit for neoadjuvant chemotherapy, but I think we really struggle with the staging. And generally, you would be talking to a high-grade patient that's thought to be a T1, um, and sometimes it's unclear whether they are a T2 and you rely on imaging for that. So that can be the difficult part of it. If it's a known T2, I think it's a lot easier than if it's a presumed T2. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's an interesting discussion. We had the ESMO guidelines meeting. I won't talk about the detail of what happened, but there's no consensus on this. And um, I think a lot of it comes back to patients. And I suspect if the NEVO trial is positive in the ITT population, a lot of patients in the US will get adjuvant, adjuvant NEVO. Clearly, many people feel survival is really important, irrespective of the setting. And, uh, and that will continue to be the case. And certainly from a guidelines perspective, it's difficult to in insist survival in one area and not the other, which is an area that we've really struggled with. Um, so it's interesting the debate will go on, and that's why we're here. So I, I have to agree. It's, it's a great debate and, you know, a lot of questions that haven't been answered. I, I personally would give adjuvant chemotherapy to a patient with an upper tract tumor who had not received neoadjuvant and was high risk at surgery. But I do have a preference to giving the chemotherapy neoadjuvant because it's much easier to give cisplatin-based chemotherapy when a person has two kidneys rather than one. So I think we'll, we'll wait further trials and further data to show us what strategy is optimal. Should we wait or should we treat early? And will we come up with an adjuvant strategy with other targeted agents that overcome some of the limitations of cisplatin? Maybe this will be future work for infortumab or um, infortumab plus immunotherapy as the, the field changes and moves toward targeted agents. And thinking towards those targeted agents, and I think, uh, Andrea, you had some data about the CAVO-NEVO-IPI work that you've been doing in the setting of your ethelial cancer. Yes, uh, thank you, Arlene. Um, I presented the final results of a phase one trial that included the dose escalation um, portion and uh, seven expansion cohorts in all GU tumors, uh, including bladder and kidney cancer and rare tumors with the doublet of cabalzantin and venivolumab and the triplet of cabalzantin and venivolumab and ipilimumab. And in this very heterogeneous group of patients, we saw a really nice response. We saw 38% response um, uh, in, in these patients with 11% complete response, um, and the duration of response was 23 months. So that's really excellent. In uh, bladder cancer patients, the overall response rate was 42% with a 21% of patients having a complete response. And in kidney cancer, uh, the response was remarkable, 63% of uh, overall response rate. Um, including sarcomatoid. And this data um, really um, informed uh, the safety um, and preliminary efficacy for larger trials that are um, ongoing and have even been reported, including the Checkmate 9ER study, the Cosmic 313 study, the Alliance Pedigree uh, study for renal cell carcinoma, and my current ongoing Alliance Iconic study um, for rare GU tumors with the combination of cabal ipi um, And I wanted to um, also mention um, the 9ER data since we are talking about cabal nevo. This would be a good transition 
Um, we did have an update um, at, at this GUASCO 2021 on the Checkmate 9ER data that was originally presented at ESMO 2020 um, that showed um, a, a DFS uh, benefit and overall survival benefit and, and an overall response rate benefit in kidney cancer patients in the first line setting. Um, we had longer follow-up. So initially it was 18 months, now it was 24 months, and still um, there was a DFS benefit um, the, with, with a great hazard ratio um, of uh, 0.52. Um, and there was also a survival benefit and still a great ratio of 0.66 comparing the combination of cabozantin and nivolumab versus sunitinib. And looking specifically at, at the sarcomatoid arm, because these patients are, tend to have a worse overall outcome, there was a PFS and an OS benefit within this group um, also. So, you know, great data. And I think this, this um, uh, uh, data is important because of the clear data that was presented at GEOASCO 2021. And I don't, Tom, would you want to talk about that? Um, thank you. Uh, I'm happy to fire away. Um, the CLEAR trial is an interesting study, I think, because um, it's uh, a three-arm study. We've done lots of two-arm studies. Again, sunitinib is the control arm, as always. Uh, but this time it's lymvatinib and pembrolizumab. Um, lymvatinib is a VEGF targeted therapy. It also has some FGFR activity. And as a single agent, and in combined with Everlimus, it's shown a lot of activity and data with pembrolizumab at 20 milligrams looked pretty good. The middle arm of the trial had Everlimus together with levatinib. And I'm going to talk about the LEN-PEN, the levatinib pembrolizumab arm, almost exclusively because it is practice changing in as much as it showed a survival, a disease-free survival hazard ratio of 0 0.39, which is extraordinarily low, a response rate of 71%, which is really very high, and again, an OS hazard ratio in the mid 0.6s, so 0.66. Um, and when you look at it together, it just looks like a very active regime. Is it more active than Cabo Nevo and Axi Pembro? We don't know because we didn't do randomized trials against those. And actually, there are more similarities and differences when you look at efficacy signals between these. And each of the three combinations has a data point that's attractive. You know, the original Axi Pembro had that 0.53 hazard ratio that was eye-catching. The Cabo Nevo data's got the, uh, the quality of life data, which looks eye-catching. And now we've got this 0.39 DFS for Len Pen which is eye-catching. And I suspect there'll be a big commercial discussion about which is best. I mean, my important point, which I'm making at the moment, is the most important thing is pick one of the regimes. They look quite similar. Learn to do it really well, because it looks like actually duration of therapy in the real world is much shorter than in the trials. And that's probably because we're not as good at, at, or, or education training is really important in this to try and maximize the outcomes of the regimes we use. So I'm not keen on getting into a debate about which of the three is best. I'm keen to get into a debate about the best way of giving the drugs. I, I completely agree. I, I think we have three active combinations. It's hard to say without doing head-to-head -head comparison, which one is better. The, you know, the arms were a little bit different um, if, if you look at the favorable group versus the intermediate group. I'm just a little bit, um, but possibly enough, you know, to kind of sway the, the tail of a curve one way or the other. So I completely agree. I think managing toxicities is really important. Um, not stopping therapy too quickly, which is what I see people doing. Just really um, uh, supporting patients with frequent visits um, and, and TKIs are difficult. 
um, and just kind of, they can be for some patients, um, just managing the, the adverse events seen with TKIs, I think is really important to keep patients on study for a long time, holding if you need to, and then resuming or dose reducing if you need to. I think all those things are very important. And it's an art, just like we, we talked about earlier, we're going to learn a little bit more about how to manage the adverse events of infortumab and dotin. I think um, it's a learning curve to manage uh, the toxicity from these combinations. So with so many great standards, you know, being compared to suitant, but not against each other, um, we see TKIs plus IO playing a huge role in renal cell. But are there patients that you would still choose nevo-ipi? Yeah, it's really important to remember that in intermediate and poorest patients, it's a really attractive combination for patients. Um, it again has attractive data points and less attractive data points. It's attractive data points. It's long-term durable PFS at about 30%, 48 months is a landmark figure, which Dave McDermott will remind me day after day. Um, on the other hand, the initial response rate is lower, only 40%. And so it's probably less good at initial control of disease. But that CTA4 may be really important in long-term durable remission, which why Andrea's work with CABO Nevo plus IPI to work out if you can keep that curve, maintain that curve, is for me the most important next study along with the adjuvant studies in renal cancer. So what about you, Andrea? Would you treat patients or any patients with Nevo IPI with the levatinib and CABO data coming out? I, I mean, a, a durable response could be quite attractive even if the immediate response rate is lower. Yeah, I, I think it's, I, I would still favor a, a TKI plus immunotherapy just because I, I, I don't know if I can call it a synergy, but I just have seen such great durable responses. And, and in the phase one trial that I had with, with the kidney cancer patients, there was not one patient that progressed. I mean, there was like the, the worst case scenario was stable disease. So um, it, it's just uh, the, the, the combination of the TKI and immunotherapy are just really, really active. And I would want to start off with the best therapy first. I kind of agree with what was said. I think the pendulum has swung a little bit away from Ipinevo towards VEGF TKI plus PD-1 therapy. Because although um, at the moment, the follow-up of the VEGF TKI immune therapy studies are not as long, they never will be as long because they, they were done afterwards. As time, those landmarks go by, if you look at the Axi-Pembro arm, which has the longest, the, uh, the OS just continues to look terrific in that group. So you know that's my personal preference, but again, I can understand why some people want to give Ipinevo. It's not the easiest regime to give. The first 12 weeks are tough because the toxicity is quite difficult to manage. Clearly, the Nevo by itself is easier to give. And again, the most important thing for me, if you're going to make that choice, is not the difference between lead and pen and Ipinevo. It's are you experienced to give Ipinevo? Does your team have a 24-hour care? Do you know how to look after grade three toxicity? Are you measuring transaminitis on a regular basis? The neurotoxicity, have you got experience of that? Do you have know how to manage? So for me, those are the important issues, not so much drug choice. So with all of these choices and the difficulties choosing between them, are there any biomarkers that you find of interest in the, the setting of kidney cancer that are helping guide what's done? We did a lot of biomarker work in the phase one trial and from immunohistochemistry staining of MET to looking at gene expressions, to looking at immune subsets. Um, and, and we haven't found anything definitive yet. Um, and, you know, that I would say 
should be incorporated into into phase three trials. I know the PDL one marker is always something that comes up. Um, it, it's not something that that I have seen to be as robust um, in these combinations. I don't know, Tom. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I did a debate with Bill Kalin recently, who uh, I think I thought I won it, but everyone tells me I didn't. But uh, so Bill <laughs> said we need more drugs, and I said we need to now pick patients better. And, um, and of course, he won the debate. I think that's because he won a Nobel Prize, to be honest. Uh, and mine hasn't arrived in the post yet. But um, I'm sure it will fairly soon. But uh, there's probably just been a mix-up over COVID. But the reality, I think, of this is that we do need to try and select these patients because we probably are going to reach a plateau fairly soon. Um, and, uh, you know, the pdl one biomarker in Ipinevo looked pretty good with hazard ratios down the 0.4s for survival. And... Um, there's been some work with gene expression signatures, many call them the GEP or TFX signatures, immune active signatures in kidney cancer, which were shown in the Javelin trial and the um, Bevatezo studies um, in, uh, in, in Motion 150 and in Motion 151 to be what appeared to be predictive. So I think we are reaching, and there was some beautiful work, um, Tony Chiwari and Bob Motzer in uh, 101, um, the 101 study too. And there's been this recent classification uh, which Brian Rini led with the six gene, the six signatures based on gene signature analysis. And so we are beginning to make progress at last in kidney cancer. I think we've got a lot of catching up to do, but I genuinely think we can be combining biomarkers. And of course, I'm excited by circulating biomarkers as well. So I, I think this has been a wonderful discussion. And uh, clearly, all of my colleagues are prize winners, whether their prizes have arrived or not, due to the excellent work they're doing in the field of kidney and urothelial cancer. We've seen several practice-changing abstracts presented at one GUASCO meeting that have resulted in New England journal papers for the lenvatinib, Pembro data, and renal cell, and in fortumabvedetin in the setting of bladder cancer. So clearly the standards are changing, the field is evolving, and hopefully in the future we'll be heading toward that personalized strategy where we can start to pick the right treatment for the right group of patients who will have the most benefit from that particular therapy. And I'd like to thank my colleagues for being so generous with their time and thoughts and not holding back at all on any of the discussion as we ask these difficult questions on how to best treat our genitourinary cancer patients. Thank you all uh, for your time. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this VG Oncology GU Cancer Session. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please subscribe and leave a review. To keep up to date with the latest cutting-edge GU Oncology content, visit vjoncology.com. Follow us on Twitter at vjoncology to join the conversation.